continue to walk through the uh, book of John and the life and ministry of Jesus as it's recorded for us there. John has selected episodes and teaching out of the life of Jesus. You can say John has a lot of red letters in it. He captures a lot of Jesus' speaking. And a lot of the things that Jesus said that some of the other authors don't capture. But there are similar stories of Jesus' works in the course of his ministry. We come this morning to uh, Jesus and the healing of a blind man, the work of God in suffering. And we'll see in the next couple of weeks some of the fallout from that work, actually. But this morning we are we are looking at and talking about the work of God in suffering, which is both a, a difficult topic. Suffering is not an exciting topic in that sense, but it is exciting as we think about who Jesus is and what he does what God is doing in our world. So we come this morning to John chapter 9. I think the bulletin may say 1 to 12. I'm going to read John 1, uh, 9, 1 to 7. Hear then the word of God. As he passed by, he saw a man that was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered them, and he said that it was not this that it was not this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work, and as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and he made mud with the saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And he said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam means sent. And so he went and he walked and he came back to see. Pray with me. Father, this morning as we have gathered in your presence and even now as we sit at your feet to hear your word, I pray, Father, and ask that you would indeed give us ears to hear soft hearts that might receive your word and see its fruit in our lives. Father, as we confront this whole issue of suffering, this man's blindness, and in whatever struggle and suffering that each of us endures in this life, would you, Father, speak into our lives with the power and the grace and the healing that comes in the King and in his kingdom. As we push back the darkness and press in toward your purposes. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is passing by. Last week we were uh, talking, Jesus was talking with the Pharisees and having this dialogue, they picked up stones to kill him, and it says that he slipped away miraculously by God's grace. Jesus manages to avoid the execution of their judgment as they wanted to stone him. We don't know what time interspersed here. As I say, the gospel writers have condensed years of ministry into a few chapters, and half of the book of John deals with Jesus' last week of life, and so you've got like 10 or 11, 12 chapters to condense three years of ministry. And so when they put these things together, these stories, they're not necessarily uh, as time-bound and as nice and neat and orderly as we would like them to be. So any amount of time may have passed. It could be an hour. It could be a week. But Jesus, is pa Jesus passes by and he sees a blind man, blind from birth. The disciples see this man. And interestingly, they ask Jesus a truly profound theological question. These guys aren't off base. This is a great question. It's a difficult question. 
that the world has wrestled with. It deals with the whole origin of evil and suffering in the world. And what we call in, in theology theodicy, the, the defense of God, or what we have called in theology and in popular writings the problem of evil. And there is a problem. Here's a man who was born blind. He's been blind all of his life. And how, how do we account for this suffering? How do we account for this difficulty? How do we account? This is not the way it's supposed to be. Who sinned? Right? Verse 2, they want to know. They ask him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents caused his blindness. Whose fault is it? Is it personal sin in the man or is it generational sin passed on from his parents? It's hard to see because the man was born blind and that means, you know, he's before he had done anything, good or bad, he was born blind, so maybe the sin was the sin of the parents, and it was it was passed on into their child. He suffers because the parents were great sinners, or, or or else it was some kind of future sin that God foresaw in the man's life, that the guy would be a great sinner, and so he would strike him at birth with blindness. Who sinned? Whose fault is it? We want to know that, don't we, all the time. We look around our world. Sign blame. Jesus answers in verse 3 this interesting answer because he tells them it was not this man that sinned, it was not his parents that sinned, but it was that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Right? Jesus' answer is neither. Right? It was not a particular sin in the parent that caused the child's blindness, it was not a particular sin in the life of the man or in the future life of the man that caused his blindness. Jesus says you're, you're, you're attaching blame in the wrong way. You're making connections. This is very tricky business. Because the truth is there's not always a one-to-one -one correlation between sin and suffering. That the one calls the other and that you can go through and say, oh, you're suffering this, and then we can just trace it out in your life and point to here's the sin, here's your problem. You wouldn't suffer that way. After Katrina, it was interesting that there was a very prominent Christian. Remember the Hurricane Katrina devastated New Orleans, virtually wiped the city off the map. There was a very prominent Christian at the time who made a very public statement that New Orleans had been notoriously wicked. And God had judged it and destroyed it. I'm not saying that God doesn't judge nations and cities. See it biblically. See that God has done that. There are places in the interpreted history of the Bible where the writers prophetically and by God's leading tell us that in this particular case, this is what God was doing in terms of judgment and so on. But what I think Jesus is going to tell us, what the Bible is telling us at this point, that we are not in a position, apart from divine <coughs> biblical revelation, we're not in a position to assume and to assign blame. You see how tricky it is in this man's life? They had narrowed it down. It was a false dichotomy. Whose fault was it? This one or this one? And Jesus says, neither one. You don't, you don't have enough information. You think, you know, to assume to assign blame in this man's life is, is, is not something you necessarily would be about. And you just look across and we start to do that. It gets really it's tricky, really ugly, really fast. The tsunami that, that devastated the, the Indian Ocean Basin and the surrounding lands, or this tsunami that came across Japan a couple of years ago, or a while ago, you know, whose fault was it? Was it a particular village, and so it was? Was it, you know, that whole part of Japan? Was it a 
particular who sinned that the tsunami hit Japan? Were there tornadoes that hit in Joplin, Missouri, or in Ringgold, Georgia? Was it, should we make the same pronouncement? It was obviously a great bed of sin in Ringgold that needed, you know, that God judged, and not us. We didn't get judged. It's a very tricky business. Superstorm in New York and New Jersey and in Daresville, the newest tornado that you go around there. There are tornadoes, tsunamis, hurricanes in every part of our country, in every part of the world, every day. And there's sin and there's suffering and pain and difficulty in everybody's lives. And assigning blame is a very tricky business. Luke chapter 13. It's another situation, verse 4, where there have been some reports of some tragedies that had struck. And Jesus says... You know, there were some who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with his sacrifices. And he answers them. I guess it was brought to him when he said this. And he answers them. He says, do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? He goes on. He says, no. He goes on. He says, those 18 who, on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. It's interesting they're here in Siloam. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. No, they weren't. And that, that's a very tricky business. Are you saying that God isolated in this tower and wiped out a notorious group of sinners and that's what was going on? You know, it's not hard to imagine Jesus saying, do you think that those people in New Orleans were worse sinners than those who were in Chattanooga? Any other situation, that man who spoke those things, in what city did he abide? Can you imagine him, God, Jesus saying to him, do you think that there are less notorious sinners in your town, or that even you are less deserving of the judgment of God than New Orleans was? Jesus clearly teaches at least this, it is not safe for us to assign blame and guilt when we play that game. And we tend to try to do this. We're tempted to judge on the base of external fortunes. And through history, this has often been the way that it is, and I think we are still tempted by it with the full revelation of Scripture. We're still tempted to judge based on these external things. If people are rich and healthy, they, they must somehow deserve it. They must somehow be good people. You know, they sit under the blessing of God in, in a way that if you're poor or sick or if you're stricken or you're homeless, you must somehow deserve it. You must somehow be you know, lazy and irresponsible in some sin that you are then cursed with this suffering. It's a very tricky business. Acts chapter 28 was an episode in Paul's life. Paul had been in a shipwreck. You know, Paul, he gives his list of things that he went through. Paul, Paul, Paul had been through everything that there is to be through. And here he stacks him up. He's in a shipwreck in the Mediterranean Sea and washes up on the shore of an island and escapes death. And as he does so, he, he enters in, as we read here, when Paul then was gathering a bundle of sticks to make a fire to dry off and warm up after having been shipwrecked. Here he is building the fire, and he says he gets a bundle of sticks to put them on the fire, and a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the native people, the people of the locals, saw it happen, they said to one another, no doubt, this man is a murderer. 
Though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Justice has hunted him down. And where the sea, where justice failed to kill him in the sea, that he comes onto dry land. And surely, because he's struck again, he must be not just a sinner, but a notorious sinner. He must be a murderer. And then clearly he wasn't. This is Paul the Apostle on the missionary journeys. And he suffers greatly in the midst of his... He's a, he's a godly man. He's a righteous man. How wrong they were to assume the worst about Paul. It's not how it works. If that was how it works, all the wicked would be dead, all the righteous would be rich. Or, more likely, the human race would be extinct. Spurgeon said, some of the most gracious men I ever met have dropped dead without a moment's warning. You cannot judge a man's state before God by that which happens to him in the order of providence. The purposes of God are deep and inscrutable. There are innumerable reasons why suffering happens in any given situation. And in the outworking of what God is doing, it is very difficult, very difficult to assume that we know what's going on. And there is great presumption in assuming in any particular tragedy to know. It was cruel and kind, and it still would be cruel and kind when someone suffers like Job to sit like his counselors and suggest if he only repented deeply enough and only admitted to, to his sins, he wouldn't be suffering so. And the story starts by telling us what a righteous man he is. Part of the problem with such thinking is it begins with the assumption that we don't deserve such suffering. Right? Whatever man it was that would make a pronouncement on New Orleans stands in the place to think that he doesn't deserve or his city doesn't deserve such judgment, such suffering. But my friends, I would pray that God does not give us justice. Not any day of the week. Not any day of my life, oh God, give me not justice, but give me your grace. And let me say this, and this may be difficult. The second thing that I want to say out of this in terms of the wages of sin that we need to understand, because the disciples really are not that far off when they ask this question. I mean, they're not that far off in trying to assign and understand how suffering and sin are related. Because the truth is, biblically speaking, we would say that all suffering is in fact the result of sin. All suffering is. And so the answer to the question in, this, in verse 2, that when they asked who sinned, this man over his parents, there is a sentence in which I, I would answer, and that Jesus, I think, in another place would answer, is both of them sinned. Who hasn't sinned? Right? We, we live in a world that is in a grand sense, both of them have sinned. Who hasn't sinned? Who, in, and, and take this in the, in the I'm going to say a couple of things that are kind of hard right here, and it's like this. Who, who, in that sense, doesn't deserve blindness? Who doesn't deserve, I say that, who doesn't deserve death and hell? And anything in between. I mean, it's a hard thing to say. But it's a very, very clear teaching of Scripture. And one of the most fundamental doctrines that we have 
Is it that the, the Savior saves us from that judgment of which we are all worthy and under which we all sit? Who doesn't deserve these things? The wages of sin, Romans 6.23, Paul tells us the wages of sin is, is death. And on the very day of our creation, when God created us, he said, the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, the day that you sin, you will die. And the world fell under a curse. And we have died 10,000 million deaths since that day in every way possible. The world has fallen and it's cursed and it's broken by the consequences of sin. And, and things are not the way they're supposed to be. From that great fall and the great curse that fell on us. And sometimes in the world things are not the way they're supposed to be. And the wicked sometimes prosper. And the righteous sometimes die young. And suffering is not equally distributed among the people. There are many times I find myself saying, you guys have had more than your fair share. You know, and it's not fairly distributed. If it were, it would, you know. And it's also not distributed in the way we would think. Well, I, I'm, you know, I'm in my 40s and, and I haven't suffered as much as some. I must have done something. And sometimes we say, you must have done something right. There's a song to that effect. You know, you must have done something right because this, you're so blessed. I would say that all disease, all suffering of every kind, of every variety, is a result of sin. It's a result of our sin. It's a result of all of our sin. The judgment of Scripture is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, and the curse has fallen on the universe and on the world in which we live. And I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, as Isaiah cried out, woe is the first woe, that we, you know, woe is me, I'm unclean, and I live amongst an unclean people. And the judgment is, is on all of us, and on our world. We live in a world stained black by human sin and rebellion against God. And what evil could befall us in this world that we do not deserve? It's a hard saying. But the world starts in the other place. What you deserve is everything good. You deserve nothing but butterflies and kisses. Right? That's all we deserve. You, you know, you listen to the, to the things. It's sometimes why I cringe when the world says, you know, and this and this. And you deserve. And, and they finally get what they deserve. And they deserve. And there are, I'm not saying there isn't some ways that we earn things in this world. But I don't know. I think we need to start somewhere else. And then everything that becomes grace. I think that's the way God paints the picture. There's no pain suffered. There's no disease contracted. There's no brokenness experienced in this life that is not the wages of sin, our sin, all of us. But my friends, even as we paint this, it's a very hard truth, but then there's very great good news. Right? The other side of this picture, which enters into the story and, and the whole purpose that the Bible is written, is that this is not the whole story. That God, in His grace, intervenes into this situation. He comes into our world to redeem and to save. And He rules over even our brokenness. And so we enter into this little episode in the life of this man who's experiencing suffering in this world the way so many of us do. We see the grace of God. We see the grace of God in and the suffering. And we see the grace of God of in the healing of this man in itself. Right? So the third thing that we see as we, we look at this is the kingdom of God coming. 
right? We see something happening. In the, the bleak picture that I just painted, the whole, the whole point is something has changed. The kingdom of God breaks in. Jesus steps onto the scene and he walks into this man's life as Lord over suffering and brokenness. Right? He walks in as someone who has something to say about it and something to do about it. The kingdom of God is breaking in in the king and in, and in Jesus' life and ministry. The healing of this blind man are the first fruits. It's the, the beginning of something that God is doing. A bigger healing. A reversal of this curse that we've been talking about. That, that's what Jesus' life is all about. It's, 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 the light has stepped into the world. And the curse itself is being undone in the lives of of people. Matthew chapter 11 verses 4 and 5. When John the Baptist sends to Jesus, Jesus comes on the scene and there are hopes and dreams about him and even John the Baptist himself when he's imprisoned and facing the death uh, sends to Jesus and asks, "Are you the one? Tell me." You know, I've been Jesus John is the forerunner of Messiah, but he's starting to have his doubts. Jesus, what's going on? Are you the one? Tell me something. Give me something to hang on to here in prison. Are you the guy? And Jesus sends word and says, Tell John, the blind receive their sight. Right? The lame are walking. The lepers are being cleansed. The deaf are hearing. The dead are being raised. The poor have good news. Preach to them. Tell John that the kingdom of God is coming. Right? Tell John that the curse is being rolled back. Tell John that light is shining in the world again, that light has stepped down into our darkness. In verse 5, Jesus tells them, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Light has stepped down into darkness, and the darkness is being pushed back in his life and his ministry. And people are being delivered from physical darkness and suffering, and people are being delivered, more importantly, from spiritual darkness and lostness, being brought back into the kingdom of God and healed inside out. So in verse 4, Jesus says, We must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day, because night is coming when no one can work. Right? Jesus says, The Father sent me, and the sent one stepped into the world as the light of the world, and, and I must be about my Father's business to heal, to save, to establish a foothold of the kingdom of God, a church. A church that will advance, and the, king, and, and, and the gates of heaven, very hell itself cannot stand against it. I'm going to start something. I must work while it is day. There's this urgency about Jesus' ministry. He is the friend of sinners, right? Of the hurting, of the broken, of prostitutes, of, of the greedy, of the blind and the lame, of the hurting and the sinner of every sort. Jesus is the friend. Jesus presses into their lives. He doesn't ignore the broken and lost of this world. Jesus walked the dusty roads and stopped with dirty, blind men. And, and, and again, in that culture, it very often was thought that man was ignored and every now was given alms because somehow he deserved it. Somehow, you, you, you know, you don't want to change that. Somehow, he's under, the, he's under the, you know, he's been stricken by God. You don't want to get in the way of that, so don't help him too much. He get, he's getting what he deserves. And Jesus walks through all that, and he goes and he finds those who are left on the margins of society. And he loves them. Right? He has come for them. 
Right? He has come for us. Sinners. The lost. And he moves toward all of those who are in need. He moves toward the lepers. He moves toward the prostitutes. He moves toward the, the blind men. And he touches them and he heals them and he speaks words of grace to them and he invites them into his kingdom and they come. And there's this urgency about Jesus. I must be about my father's business. This is the business of the kingdom. This is, this is, this is in the scope of the world. Right, the works of God. I must do the works of God while it is day. My friends, Jesus has made us his ambassadors. Right? We are ambassadors of Jesus Christ in his kingdom, the kingdom that pushes back the darkness, the kingdom that moves toward the hurting and the, and the marginalized, right? the, the kingdom that loves sinners and moves towards them and invites them in and embraces them. He has made us ambassadors of the kingdom of God. Like Jesus, we must be about the Father's business. There's an urgency to it. It's not always going to be day. We can't always work. And right now, we have great freedom to work in this country. And as many of us bemoan and bewail day by day, that's being curtailed. And, and there, are, there are clouds on the horizon of the ways that we'll be restricted and what we can say, even what we can preach. And some of the, the benefits that we've enjoyed in this country may be stripped away. And, and the freedom that we have here may not always be there. Whether it is or not, Jesus is saying, there's an urgency about this. We must be about the works of my Father, the one who sends us to move toward the suffering. Agents of healing, agents of grace, and as we do it, praying, thy kingdom come, push back the darkness, undo the curse, heal, use me. As we are indwelt by his spirit, as we love him, as we walk with him, Jesus says, as I was sent into the world, so send I you. Go, right, go. There's light shining in the darkness. Right? We see God's grace in the person of Jesus and His power to heal and push back the darkness. But we also see God's grace in the purposes here. Even as He reigns and rules over the suffering of the curse that this world is under, He shows Himself sovereign over every element of it. And He reigns and He rules and works within it. Right in verse 3, Jesus answers them when he says it, it's, it's not either of their particular sin. It wasn't the man. It wasn't the parents. But what's going on here is God is at work. God is displaying his glory. God is displaying his work here. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around. Here in this suffering. Here in this brokenness. Here in this place that we would look and we would look long and hard for the work of God. You know, but God steps in. It's here that God wants to work. Jesus lifts up. There, there is a real profound something being said in Jesus' words here. That in our suffering, God has the purpose that His works might be displayed. Not only in this man. But in each and every one of us, which I believe is a clear teaching of Scripture, it's a very profound theological and practical statement about the meaning of our suffering and what God is doing, that His works might be displayed in us, even in this cursed and broken world, as His kingdom breaks into our lives. And His purposes are fulfilled in each of us in the midst of suffering. Right? God has not abandoned. That's what it tells God has not abandoned this world. 
He's not given it over to suffering. He has not ceased to have purposes. He's not ceased to work. He has not left us. He is, you know, God is not abandoned the world that he's made or his image in humanity. He is never far from suffering. And sometimes that's people's answer to to theodicy, to the problem of evil, is God must either be asleep or absent or he's just removed his hand and, and off it goes. And, you know, God's doing all that he can do, but oh well, you know, we'll just have to buck up. You know, he's, he's doing the best he can. And there's none of that. God is here. God is working. God is displaying his power in the midst of suffering. He remains sovereign on who and when and where and how. It has very purposes in it to display himself in the lives of people. Well, sometimes those purposes are inscrutable. I like that word, inscrutable. You can't, it's not able to be discerned. You can't figure it out. It's beyond our grasp. It's it's inscrutable. Sometimes his purposes are not something we we will figure out. They're bigger than we can discern. They're bigger than us. Sometimes we think our suffering is all about us, and sometimes there are much bigger things going on. Like in Job's life, there were much bigger things going on. Ephesians 1, we're told, Ephesians 1.11, it speaks of the purpose of him who is working all things according to the counsel of his will. And as we enter into suffering, we start there in believing in a God whose hands are at work in all things according to the counsel of his will. When it comes to the suffering of his people, The Bible is very clear that it is never without purpose. That He is never absent. And that God's hand is upon it even as His Spirit is within us. And that He is shaping and molding His people and displaying His work and His power in the lives of those who know and love Him. Romans chapter 8, it's so familiar to us we almost stop hearing it. Romans 8, 28 and 29, Paul writes and he says, We know that for those who love God, for believers, for those who believe in Christ and love their God and are walking with Him, for those who love God, all things are working together for the good. And the all things here doesn't mean all good things are working together for the good. Because our lives aren't a string of good things. Our life is just a string. (laughs) There's good, bad and ugly. Right? And, and that string, all things, he's working together with a good end. And he doesn't even leave us wondering what it is. He's working together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God, what is that purpose? Help me in here. You know, with the things that I'm going through, what is your purpose? For, because those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Right? God is, is called us. And it's destined for us to be formed and shaped and changed from underneath the curse that this world has laid upon us and within us to remake us in the image of His Son. And so in everything, a believer's suffering then becomes the theater of God's glory where He's displaying His power and His grace, where He is at work within us. Spurgeon says this, They are sent to refine. They are sent as holy discipline. They are sent as sacred excavators to make more room in the heart for Christ and His love. He says, lift up your eyes from your suffering. You know, sometimes we'll play the game like we do, like the blind man and the the disciples who sinned, you know, and I might be going through something and saying, what have I done? 
to deserve this. I wish I could just figure it out and then maybe I would be delivered from it. You know, or what, what is it that I can, we, we grope around so that we can. The great excavators to make room in the heart to make us more like sometimes only the fire can refine. You know, there is that work which God does in our hearts and in our lives and it's a good work. But he has to bring the fire to bear, to purge the dross. There's no other way, there's no other path. All of our trials, all of our troubles are sent by God's work that he might manifest in us for his glory. They're sanctifying, but it's also manifested in, in the way he meets us in our trials. I have rarely met anyone who has suffered greatly. who knows and loves God and is called according to His purpose, did not, who did not find their spiritual life deepened and strengthened by their suffering, who did not come away saying, I would never, I've heard people this very week say to me, I would never wish it on myself again. You know, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but I'll tell you this. God did a mighty work. God did a mighty work. Suffering changed everything. It set me free from all the, that, that seemed so important. And God manifests himself. He sustains us. Right? He meets us in our suffering. And he, and he not only is changing us, but then he also sustains us. He works within us. The patient endurance and the steadfast faith as we bow the knee to his providence. As we submit ourselves to his will and endure what he calls us to endure and walk the path that he calls us to call and continuing in in a joyful continuance in worship in a pursuit of holiness despite the trouble, despite the pain, God's work is manifest. I think that's what James meant. James opens his book. You read the book of James. It's all about practical Christianity, right? You know, the tongue in our lives and doing good works and, you know, all this. But he opens it up and he says, my friends... Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Count it all joy. Count it all joy when you face all kinds of suffering and trouble. Because you know something. You know something really, really important. It changes everything. You have a glimpse into the work that God is doing. He meets us and he sustains us. And, he, and he, in, in the midst of it, in patient endurance with all joy. And he says, consider it joy because God is working. You know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness must have its full effect. It must be brought to maturity that you may be perfect, complete, more like the Son. Conformed to the image of his Son. And then lacking nothing. This is the good work that's important to him in this life. More than your comfort, more than your happiness, more than anything this world has to give. His notion is this. Don't put down roots. <laughs> don't, don't set your hopes on, on anything in this world, whether it's health or wealth or anything else, because this world is passing away. And I am shaping you into the image of my son for an eternity pressed into my presence. And that work is a good work. So he measures out our trials. J.I. Packer says, Whatever further purpose a Christian troubles may or may not have, they will always have at least that purpose which Paul's thorn in his flesh had. They will have been sent to make us and to keep us humble and to give us a new opportunity to show forth the power of Christ. To give us a new opportunity 
to show forth the power of Christ. How is your suffering at this very moment? Whatever it is. And some of you are suffering in very minor ways. Some of you are suffering in very great ways. How is your suffering? Whatever it is in your life, a new opportunity to show forth the power of Christ and His work in your life as one who belongs to Him in a broken, fallen world. To show forth the hope and the grace that is ours. 2 Corinthians 4, 7-10, Paul says this, We have this treasure in jars of clay. Fragile, breakable. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And so we're afflicted in every way. But we are not crushed. We are perplexed. But we are not driven to despair. Despair. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We're struck down, but we are not destroyed. Right? We're always carrying in the body of death the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus might be manifested. That it's by His power that we stand and are sustained. It's by His power that we can sing songs at midnight of worship trust and praise. May you hear this day what Paul heard as he wrestled with his thorn in the flesh and the suffering he endured. Jesus says to him, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. and My power is made perfect in your weakness. Oh, my friends, in all that we suffer, may we seek for the power of Christ to be manifest in us. Pray with me. Father in heaven, these are deep waters. And yet there's nothing more practical. We will not escape this world without suffering. And so teach us now. Open our hearts and our minds to understand now what it means to walk with you through suffering. To know that you are at work. Father in heaven, we thank you for your words of grace, for the kingdom that is coming, and for uh, the hopes and the promises and the presence of the Lord Jesus who endured suffering himself and who pours out his spirit in our lives as one who sympathizes with our pain. Draw near to us now. Teach us what it means to walk with you in suffering, for we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.